0: Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper on Wednesday, March 29th, 2023. Okay. So this podcast is dedicated to Michael Abuhoff, Dan's younger brother, who uh, shockingly passed away last week. And it was a huge loss. It is a huge loss, and especially for us, because... He, I guess he was our number one listener. Well, yeah. Or claimed to be. Yeah,
1: claimed to be. It turns out he had help when he couldn't... When he, when he felt it was important that when he got on the phone, he was able to talk about our last podcast. I now learn that he had help. There were he had friends of his who would cover him once in a while and listen to the podcast and tell him what was going on. Which and quiz was, him.
0: <laughs> refresh his memory. Yeah,
1: look, I, let me just say this. I don't want to dwell on this. I can't. But... Um, You know, we had two services. We had a funeral down there in Florida, and then there was a service at the burial site yesterday. And what I learned about Michael, what I didn't know, uh, is Michael, who I always thought of as my best friend, really, other other than in you, um, is that Michael was everybody's best friend. Uh, There were 150 people at the funeral in Florida. And uh, several people got up and said Michael was their best friend. And the reason... um, was that Michael was the kind of person who would always listen to people. And that's what he did, really. I mean, he was uh, super supportive. He was always patting people on the back, encouraging them, but always, uh, you know, there for them. And he wasn't, you know, and and he he was kind of a guy who had a lot of social capital, a very attractive guy, very athletic, maybe even charismatic, good sense of humor. He was a popular person, but he always had time for everybody. And he made a big impression. So, um, even I learned something about Michael. So, uh, you know, it's an awful thing, and uh, we'll deal with it. But, uh, you know, he was a great person.
0: He was, and uh, it was uh, sad to say goodbye, but it was great to um, see the impact he had on people. And and um, meet some of his friends, actually. we uh, um, You got reacquainted with uh, some of his uh, friends from Camp Oxford and Guilford, uh, especially uh, Louise Edmund.
1: Yeah, Gary Cohen.
0: You know, it, what happened was... Uh, Nina.
1: Yeah, Michael and I... Michael was a camper. I was a counselor years ago. And uh, Michael kept up with these folks to some degree. Uh, and sure enough, someone's knocking at our car window yesterday morning.
0: At the burial.
1: At the burial. And he says, uh, I'll roll it down, the person says, uh, Mr. Abioff, Dan Abioff? I say, yes, said, I recognized you. I'm Gary Cohen from Camp Oxford. So he, this was a guy was was um, in the, my brother's bunk, uh, campers when I was a, a counselor. And he claimed to have recognized me. That's another subject. But, uh, you know, 50 years ago.
0: You hadn't seen him for fifty years. Yeah, yeah,
1: Probably more than fifty years.
0: And they've stayed friends for fifty years. He's yeah. stayed in touch with these people. Yeah, and uh, I read about that in the paper. You well, know, about that happens. People forging yeah. uh, relationships based on camping years and years and years ago, and uh, you know it was it was uh, great to see. And I have to say that uh, Louise especially had been a good influence on Michael. Um, she actually uh, encouraged him to send some really fabulous uh, <laughs> yeah. Christmas gifts right. recently. Yeah, I remember.
1: Well, yeah, um, Michael sort of upped his game in terms of gift-giving for the grandchildren. We couldn't understand why. Right. Michael, out-
0: super generous guy, yeah. always sent an enormous box of gifts right. to us. Right. And they were always bizarre Yeah, in some ways. I mean, they could be anything. They could be... Um, Sunglasses, right, uh, right. jerseys from sports teams, right. uh, free T-shirts from wherever he was working, um, and and just crazy random things like maybe a Miami Dolphins uh, clock, wall clock or something. That's not uh, crazy. It's that's not crazy? It
1: tells time. Though. It does something. You, you right. can always use a clock. Anyway,
0: yeah, um, very generous guy, uh, but uh, the um, you know sort of. Art-oriented, uh, sophisticated yes. gifts that he sent this Christmas. And we didn't know they were from him. And I think yeah. we mentioned it on the podcast. We got some gifts. We don't know yes. who they're from. Yeah. We don't know yes. who they're for. So
1: it was from the Museum of Modern Art. And there were four of the grandkids. And we're trying to figure out who it's was from. And I said to the Thames, maybe it's from Michael. And Tamsin said to me, Michael can't spell MoMA.
0: <laughs> well, I meant to say. You yes, know, I know Michael what you mean. doesn't right. And And So it Mo- wasn't
1: Michael. It was Louise. So... Ah, uh, yeah
0: thank you louise yeah
1: all right so maybe we'll have more to say uh michael in the future that's it's as much as i can do yeah let's let's go on let's go on um well right. so, so
0: well you know i mean michael would be uh celebrating the uh beginning of baseball right? oh yeah
1: absolutely baseball season starts tomorrow and uh there are all kinds of extremely dull articles about the new rules i guess we'll you know if we watch baseball, you'll you'll see the new rules. I guess I will, too. So we'll worry about that then. There was an interesting article in The Times about Steve Cohen, which is a little bit of old news, too. He's owned the Mets for a few years, and uh, he's changed the culture because he's rich. Uh, people can do that if they're rich. So there's a huge influx of money. The Mets went from having uh, owners who were penurious, or at least could barely get by and could not get any of the talent that was available on the free agent market, to now having the richest owner in the business. And a guy who spends on it and of course steve cohen is the subject of billions the uh show on uh i guess what showtime and then now is hbo yeah literally
0: or is that understood it, is,
1: everyone understands it it's not a secret okay, but it's no not, one not denies called it. steve cohen no he's not Every, and and okay. the guy playing him is much better looking but the, putting all <laughs> that aside uh it, it it's very very close to his story mm. Uh, and Steve Cohen's story, as played out on television and, and is described here again, is that he is a super successful hedge fund guy, uh, seemed to have information others didn't have. Uh, they had 30% returns for years, which is extraordinary, hounded by the uh, U.S. attorney Preet and ultimately uh, forced to make a settlement. Preet thought he had him, but he made a settlement, which there was no jail time, paid $1.8 billion, which he could easily afford, apparently. Uh, And part of it was that he couldn't manage public money, but he would just manage his own money, which was fine because he had tens of billions of dollars to manage. So Cohen, on the other hand, you take a hit to your reputation if you're paying fines and stuff like that. Uh, It's not a mark of honor to be uh, nailed by the SEC. And uh, he is, in a sense, rehabilitating his reputation by becoming the so-called beloved owner of the Mets. Mets fans love him because he's getting all this talent and everything. And as a matter of fact, uh, he turns out to be quite adept politically. There A lot of people didn't want him to buy the team because of this reputation, all these politicos, including de Blasio, who thought they mattered. Turns out they didn't matter. And in part, not just because Cohen had more money, but because he made deals with all the people who were important to get approvals beforehand. Mm -hmm. Sometimes money changed hands. And this goes right up to be getting the vote, the necessary vote of the other owners in the Major League Baseball. Somehow he worked it out so that they approved him and no one thought this was going to be possible. But, you know, he's described in this article in the Times as the, quote, king of New York, or as the fellow who's quoted here says in the article, isn't it funny? Here we are now. Steve Cohen's the king of New York, and Barara, no longer the U.S. attorney, has a podcast. So, so there you are. Not there's <laughs> but, but anything wrong with having you a podcast. This, they're yeah. not
0: going to miss the, the the fans are not going to miss sort of the poignant uh, position of the Mets, like scraping together money for such and such a player who uh, who then fizzles out. Yeah. I mean that seems you know now I can answer, there's just money I, I, flowing I can like crazy. The answer there, is you know, that, no
1: no uh you know I, I understand your point i get it and when you're in that situation you say this is the way we want to be a fan we want to live and die with our team if it means a lot of dying but when suddenly the rich uncle appears and he says you know we're loaded now everyone goes cool all <laughs> <laughs> right so that's where we are all right so you have and how, a point pl- well,
0: how does the times feel does time's negative
1: well, the Times, you know... Uh, are they cranky? Are they like, doesn't like pe- you know, people with he's, money. he's rich. Yeah, it yeah, doesn't like... all well, well, the owners are rich, and, you know, he's super rich, the hedge fund guy. Uh, I don't know how the Times feels. The Times barely covers sports, so, you know, who cares? Okay. But, uh, go, go ahead. All yeah. right,
0: I have to zoom along here because we have lots of things yeah, you can, you can we want to talk about. I'll drop I should mention yeah. that we're at somewhat of a disadvantage this week. Yes. Because Ellie, mm. our beloved engineer... Yes has seen fit to take a vacation with her boyfriend in Japan.
1: Did her parents know about this? I don't even know. Well, but you can't say this on the podcast if her parents don't know about it. Maybe <laughs> the boyfriend's a, parents don't know. She's a grown woman. She's uh, a
0: grown woman. That's definitely not the case. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah. so Ellie's in Japan, so I have to do all the uh, editing yeah. and so forth. So apologies in advance. The sound quality uh, for the next few weeks is really terrible. It's my fault. Okay, I'm struggling. All right, move along. No one, to no, no, no one wants to, to hear this. these. Anyway, so I'm oh. reaching out. Yeah. I know Ellie's not listening to the podcast, yeah. but I was thinking of her when I saw this article. And it's about yeah. creature cafes in Japan. Yeah. You know, Japan is always coming up with these uh, fun ideas. Apparently, there are cafes you can go to in Japan where there are like uh, enclosures with reptiles or and or birds, especially owls. Okay, they say about thirty uh, percent of these animal cafes have. Sixty um, percent of the cafes have mainly birds. And 40% of those birds are owls. People love owls. We're obsessed with so owls. So they
1: want to eat dinner with having an owl nearby. Or have
0: a drink, you know. Mm-hmm. And in some of the places, you can actually touch the animals. There's mm. a picture of somebody with a ferret in their lap. Yeah, great. Um, so uh, I, I assume that costs extra. <laughs> but, uh, I think if it's a and ferret, There, there are concerns cost. about uh, where are the animal's coming from. Yeah, have they sure. been you know, properly sourced? Yeah. Uh, are they being well treated? Uh, most people seem to feel the enclosures are pretty small. It's not a good way for animals to be uh, making their living. Uh, so uh, we'll see yeah. what happens. Right. You know, I have to say that in general, people seem to think that zoos do not smell mm-hmm. very nice. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how um, appealing the atmosphere is. In these places. But anyway, uh, if, um, you know, uh, Ellie. Yeah, Ellie won't let us know Kyoto, when she gets back. Yeah. When you hear this, yeah. uh, you know, you might want to check out uh, the front. The, what is it called? Funny Creatures Cafe. Yeah, I would stay away. Funny would... Creatures Forest in yeah, Kyoto. Yeah. Is probably is okay. something in
1: Japanese is the name. But All yeah. right.
0: Yeah. Also, um, for tourism, yeah. it's cherry blossom time. And uh, don't forget that now um, in the modern world, You can look up your favorite cherry blossom locations like the Brooklyn Botanical Gardens, Mm -hmm. um, the Central Park. Uh, Washington D.C. I just went to Washington D.C. We're past peak in Washington D.C. Already. Really? Yeah. You're kidding. Up here, we're just beginning to see a few blossoms. They are past. I think peak, people in baby. Washington
1: have been past their peak for a long time. <laughs>
0: All right. Yeah. Oh, you're hot today. Um, so you can so go to those go to the websites and yeah. they will actually. Yeah. The Brooklyn Botanical Gardens has very nice little graphics with different you know colors highlighting yeah. what Super. which areas. Yeah. Um, our peak and past peak past and uh, or peak, so right. forth. Okay. So that's kind of a fun improvement. Um, also, I read an article about leisure time and services. Okay. So, you know, we, we went through this economic downturn mm-hmm. with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Now we're working our way back. And services are always slow to recover, and they're slow to um, increase in general.
1: Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I see it a little differently than you do, but what
0: you, it, it says—it says in the article that um, you the wrong—you got the, wrong, you got the yeah, wrong article there. No, productivity. Um, oh,
1: oh, that's what you're talking about. Oh, yeah. Okay. Productivity Even is though impact.
0: wages rise quickly in services, yeah. uh, productivity doesn't really keep pace with other ind- industries. Yeah. And that's because uh, you know, of the limitations of the timing of services. Okay, okay. Um, Certain services you use only between 9 to 5 or after 9 to 5. That's all blown apart now mm-hmm. because with people working remote or mm-hmm. with people with more mm-hmm. sort of flexible schedules, yeah. you can, they're finding that people are getting all their work done early in the day and jumping on the golf course, really? like midday, you well, know, maybe this will... so that, uh, some golf courses, uh, Chelsea Piers yeah. golf course, which I can't believe Chelsea Piers has golf. Yeah, I didn't know they had I I don't course. know how that works. Yeah. Um, because isn't it a pier? I don't know. Um, but, um, they are actually raising, you know, they used to have a bargain rate for a membership for weekday games, right? Yeah. And now they're raising that because there's more demand for um, weekday. Raising the uh, fee, you mean. W- re- raising the fee, yeah. yeah. And uh, hairdressers are getting more busy during the day. Well, that's that's good. It
1: kind of smooths thing, things out.
0: I guess so. But the other weird thing that is happening okay. Is that um, people are doing their work at some of these services? Well, that that that's what that people I claim. They say it. at these climbing gyms, they see people working on memos. Yeah. Uh, There's one lady from a beauty parlor said uh, one of her clients held a Zoom call with foils in her hair. Well, yeah. Okay. Um, so some employers are saying, you know. That's probably not uh, the highest level of productivity. Uh, not really what we want to see. So there seems to be a bit of tension,
1: mm-hmm.
0: okay, between um, you know having uh, work-life balance, achieving better work-life balance uh, by this kind of timing and um, productivity. Yeah, sure. Improving business. Right. Yeah. So we'll see what happens there. Yeah. But uh, you know that's bad news for us as retirees. We're usually benefiting by, by you know, slack the, times. Yeah. Uh, yeah,
1: but at least you know it's more reasons for businesses to be open during the week. You know that, that's okay.
0: That's fine. We're all for businesses recovering, especially yeah. the service businesses. And
1: yeah. oh, what else did you did?
0: Oh my, I'm, I'm still on.
1: Yeah, I'm letting you clear out. Uh, clear, you know, you clear out your head here.
0: Oh, all right. All right. I have one little museum thing yeah. on my mind. Yeah, and that is you know there's the ongoing struggle of whether museums are going to. Give back uh, their art from other countries. Right. It's one thing if things have been stolen, yeah. okay, or and looted and so on. It's another thing if they feel they have been uh, um, acquired by legal means. Right. Okay. Um, the biggest case is, of course, uh, good old British Museum and the Elgin Marbles. That discussion is still going on. In general, the British Museum doesn't want to give anything up. They mm. say. Come to us. It's a free museum. Anybody can see these things. We are sharing these things with the world. Um, and they are safe here. But here's an interesting case. There's a group of well, things. No
1: jump in. The Elgin Mortals would go back to Greece. Greece wants them.
0: Greece wants them. Yeah, okay. We talked about this You're right. They
1: came from Greece.
0: Um, the British Museum is floating an idea of why don't we loan right, you right. some makes, of them And make like, for like 3D replicas while, or something. Okay? Yeah. And then we can loan you other ones. Right, right. We will loan you things, hmm. but uh, we don't want to give them right, up. Right, right. But anyway, there's something called tabots or tabots. I don't know how to pronounce it. Which are wooden plaques considered by Ethiopian Christians to contain God's presence. All right. British Museum has 11 of them. They are not on display. They are so sacred that uh, I think only priests are allowed to look at them. Yeah. So the British Museum has some. Yeah. They're not on display. Mm-hmm. They can't be put on display. And should they give them back? Is there any reason mm. for the British Museum to have them. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a little bit tricky. Also, how they were acquired was kind of tricky because apparently um, the British consul was kidnapped, Mm -hmm. Okay, was being held hostage in Ethiopia. So they sent in Sir Robert Napier, a British general, to free the consul and some other hostages in Ethiopia, only to find that the emperor who had kidnapped the people, had killed himself. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, while they were there, they bought and or helped themselves to many of these objects. When was this? The British.
1: When was this?
0: This was... um,
1: Ten years ago or a hundred years ago. Mm -mm
0: I don't need the exact year.
1: 1868. Okay.
0: Fine. All right. I mean, it was all strange yeah so that that seems more complicated to me but they're not even on display so okay. british museum why do you need them i mean maybe they, they feel a sense of stewardship or something yeah, well i, I don't think know. that that
1: might be that might
0: be um you know but there was a nice um an interesting way of putting it uh by one of the by the chairman dismantling it must not become the careless act of a single generation what does that mean That means that, uh, so at the moment, people are feeling, ah, maybe we should give this stuff back, Mm. and, you know, Mm. and uh, take apart this uh, collection Mm. that's been hundreds of years in the making, and then uh, next year, no one will really care about this issue, Mm. and it wouldn't be fashionable to give things back, and, you know, it will all already be disassembled. Okay. All right.
1: All right. So, So, you know, the question goes on. Yeah. Okay, so then you had something...
0: One uh, last thing. Yeah. One last thing? Yes. Oh Well, not really. Then I mean, you're done. I, and then well, you, I just... Uh, people have heard Ellie, enough Ellie, as you. long as you're on vacation, oh, here's God. a problem. What? <laughs> They're not cleaning hotel rooms daily anymore. Well,
1: that's been true for a while.
0: Well, they stopped cleaning. You know, in general, there was the idea that it was unsafe. People didn't want cleaners right. in their room, right. etc. Yeah. Um, so, but now the... Hotels are saying, well, you know, we're really saving some money.
1: So why go okay. back?" So let me let me help you out with this. What? That was always the reason. Okay, the hotels were just always saving money, and it was it, they started this with saying it's not environmentally sound to clean the room every day. Then it was uh, the pandemic; you don't want people in your room. Now it's like, we'll think of something. But the, the fact is, they save money when they don't clean the rooms, and it sounds. I don't want to be grouse about this too much because it sounds like you know uh, I'm complaining bitterly. I'm I'm not. Except it's just funny that they're kind of kind of shading it this way. This was the reason. That was the reason. It's always been about money.
0: Well, one uh, right. one uh, person they interviewed in the article in the Times mentioned that uh, the biggest problem is the trash, which yeah. I agree. They give you a little teeny trash can or yeah. two in the hotel room, right. and especially if you're you know bringing home. Yeah, a cup of coffee right. or even some takeout food. There's nowhere to put the garbage. Well, there must so, be a way to
1: solve that problem. Yes,
0: that, they should solve that problem. Yeah. You, know, you certainly don't need your room cleaned up every five minutes. There yeah. is that. But the unions are miffed because people are losing jobs. And also, well, it, it becomes a bigger job. You know, when you, somebody has a hotel room for three or four days, yeah. it's a bigger mess to clean up.
1: I understand, but I am sure than that if the you hotels. you just
0: went in every day and chipped away at it. No. no I mean, no, that's no. what you tell your no, kids about no. cleaning their no, rooms. No, no, you know, no. no, no. Take whole, care of your room. Believe every me, day. the
1: hotels are saving money on labor and everything and taking home more money by not cleaning the rooms. I'm sure they've. They figured out whether uh, they do better by cleaning every other day or every third day as opposed to every day. So that I wouldn't worry about, the, the chipping away. It's, it's just another way to make money. Look, the, um, there's an obituary. This, is, this has a tie-in with your last story, trust me. Dillis Wynn died. Dillis Wynn is a woman who had a bookstore in Manhattan called Murder, Inc. And you're saying, what does that have to do with this? In 1972... She had an idea to open a bookstore that would sell nothing but mystery stories. And she opened it up on the west side of Manhattan on 84th Street when the west side was a little dodgy. Um, And between West 87th and uh, Broadway and West, then eh, that would have been a little dodgy. Uh, And it was a storefront. She didn't know anything about the the bookstore business. But her thought was they're just going to fill the bookstore with mystery books, and she would go to the large sellers like Brentano's at the time and Doubleday and write down the names of titles and collected all these titles. And strangely, the bookstore was a success. She got some favorable press. The New York magazines wrote about it, and she uh, did reasonably well, notwithstanding that she was totally quixotic. It wasn't open all the time. People sometimes had to call to make sure she was open, but uh, it had a certain charm, and she would hold, hold certain events, including a St. Valentine's Day massacre themed party in the garage next door. Uh, and uh, she was on to tell the truth. It was all very exciting. Now, here's why I bring this up. Okay. Five years later, uh, she sold the bookstore to, to a woman named Carol Brenner, and she partnered with Carol Brenner and Carolyn Fisk the director of development at Mohonk Mountain House, to mastermind an immersive whodunit at that resort. And she became the original producer of their uh, Mohonk Mystery Weekend, which is now produced uh, by something called Murder Cafe, and it's in its 47th year at Mohawk. And we were vaguely aware of this because we would get there. They have
0: all those kind of things. It's like jazz on the mountain.
1: Exactly. Wait, but, the, yeah. but, but what they do, and I actually looked it up. Yeah. And what they do is they have actors come and right. the murder cafe the people who run it now. she since, uh, she tossed it away a long time ago. And uh, you sit in, the guests sit in a large room and these actors suddenly, spontaneously start some conversation or some. Something happens. Someone turns around, and you hear a gunshot and whatever. And everybody said, "What was that?" And there's a dead body on the ground. And the rest of the weekend is spent solving the murder mystery. Yeah,
0: but you you hear about these things all the time. Did she invent the concept? Yeah, you're kidding.
1: No, yeah. that's how you get an obituary in the New York Times, honey. Oh yeah, she she invented it. So Mohawk well,
0: uh, would be a fun place to yeah, be part of. And, a and I did look mystery.
1: at the, some of the clips from it, and it looks very uh, not interesting, but. Uh, <laughs> But, but it, you know, it's a YouTube video clip. The quality is poor and God only knows. So, who knows? We can think about that. Think about All it. Right. Okay. But what I
0: am thinking about is I'm hoping you take me out to the movies ah, okay. this weekend. Oh, you've
1: got to be a good person, but yes. yes. <laughs>
0: um, I didn't say dinner and <laughs> the movies. Oh, wow. yeah. Of course um, not. Yeah. But, because um, I really, really, really want to see The Lost King. All right. Which is a... Um, Movie about finding the bones of Richard the mm-hmm. Third. Okay, so Richard the Third, King Richard the Third. I guess it was a few years ago, maybe uh, 2012 or something. I don't know. Um, they found some bones under a parking lot. Yeah, you know. A a parking spot um, in the UK, and, right? Yeah, yeah. And it turned out actually to be his bones. So this is the story, and at, you know it's um, Steve Coogan,
1: right? And Sally is, Hawkins.
0: And Sally Hawkins, right? Screenplay by Jeff Pope, directed by Stephen Frears. Um, so it really, and you know, it got a. Good review in the New York Times. They're calling it a critic's pick.
1: All right, all right. Look, we'll see it, uh, but we'll, we'll, say, we'll talk about we'll talk about it some more when we see it. This
0: is a movie yeah. that is less about rehabilitating a monarch yeah. than reinvigorating Samson. a life.
1: We're going to see the movie and we'll talk about it next week. Okay, so enough. A
0: lost king.
1: Well, you know Sally Hawkins. She was in The Shape of Water, right? You remember that.
0: Right. Well they say she's fabulous.
1: She she is a great actress.
0: Okay. So it, it should be it should be fun. Yeah. We want to see the quiet girl. The quiet girl is in the neighborhood too. So yeah. that's the one that's in Iris, right?
1: Yeah. We got right. a lot of a lot of work. We to got do. a lot of Okay. To do. So they're doing they're redoing Camelot. And the funny thing about redoing Camelot every well the press you read is Well, everybody knows Camelot was very problematic, and uh, it was popular because people liked the music, but, oh, boy, there's a lot of problems with that book. It has to be redone, it has to be done. So there's complete unanimity on that score. So uh, how are we going to go about doing it? And and I have to say, my reaction to that is, what? Really? There was a problem with Camelot? I I don't... Was it hard to follow? I mean, uh, what are you talking about? I mean, uh, the two people, you got the qu- king and the queen, and uh, she gets, falls in love with another guy. I mean, how simple could it possibly be? But uh, apparently there are problems. So they went and they hired, uh, who else? Aaron Sorkin to redo the book. The guy who straightened out uh, what he called it, Kill a Mockingbird, and who I've experienced with, we've talked about in the past, uh, worked, I had a little input, in the social network, but you read the article on Aaron Sorkin and Camelot, and you were impressed. How? Well,
0: well, first of all, I'm not looking forward to it because I seem to be always disappointed in these revivals. Yeah. And I do love Camelot. Yeah. And I especially love the, the like the less politically correct stuff. But the, yes, you know how yes. to handle a woman. I think it's not about how to handle a woman. I think it's how to handle how. To, how to love someone, really? Yeah, right. Um, well, that's what—that's the, uh, the
1: point of the song. The point of the song is you don't handle anybody. That's right, what the song right, is about. Right. So yeah, yeah, you know, right. what are
0: we worried about? Right. Um, and Fie on goodness. I mean, that's well, a fabulous fi, idea.
1: Fa- fie on goodness is a little risque. It's a little and, risque. And let's be honest, I want you to you be know honest. I've been
0: playing it for hazi so I hope he's not getting. <laughs>
1: well, he—he's uh, definitely not getting it. But—but but my it's, point it's is, it's a
0: rousing song.
1: Yeah. <laughs> It's a little risque, but the truth is, you first heard it when you were, I'll say, 12.
0: No, 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 I was in middle school. I was in junior high school. That's not I 12? went to the library. What, what age Probably is that? Probably like 13. Yeah.
1: Am I way off? I said 12. It's 13. Somehow,
0: somehow 12 sounds very. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, 13 or, sounds fine. on the cusp fine. of you're, maturity.
1: You're 13. And you, you were very excited by these lyrics. They were a little risque, and that was right up your alley as a thirteen-year-old. I, I
0: thought it was tremendous. You were fun. ready
1: for risque lyrics. Well,
0: I I was already a um, you know King Arthur fan.
1: Okay, that, all right. That's not and, exactly what we're focused on at the moment, but yes. Okay. So
0: the the subject matter appealed to yeah. me. Okay, risque, and, uh,
1: and uh, you went for it. So it.
0: So anyway, so I think it's interesting that. Uh, I'm still not sure why they chose Well, there's Sorkin. no reason. Okay, let, let, let's
1: back up. There's no reason in the world to rewrite it. Okay, none. Zero. Less but they, zero. Are but they are doing it. But they are doing it. And you might as well choose Sorkin. He's a name and they're trying to make money. That's fine. Let them do it. Okay. Who else would you have chosen?
0: And also the other person working in it is the person he, he did uh, Mockingbird with, right?
1: I don't know. I, don't, I, I didn't really uh, read it that carefully. Could be.
0: Okay, well, but I, uh, I was, I'm looking to you for this because you are now, the I, I, theater maven. Well,
1: I know Sorkin, but Bartlett the, Shear. Yeah, Bartlett Shear is a director. Yes. Okay. Sorkin's okay. the writer. So
0: they're, but they still work together to some. Yeah, extent, I know. But Bartlett right? Shear
1: is famous for doing a lot of these, recreating a lot of these classics. Bartlett Shear was okay. the director of the King. So they're and excited when they about together, yeah.
0: working together. Oh, that's right.
1: that's for the paper, Tams, and I don't know how excited they are about working together. I mean,
0: come on. Anyway, it just. Part of the article in the New York Times. It's a big, long article. Yeah, uh, Sunday Times this yeah. weekend, yeah, and it mentioned that in November, yeah, Sorkin had a stroke, yeah, which he he didn't really know what was happening, but he kept spilling his orange juice, right, and uh, he realized something was up. He called his doctors. His doctors said, uh, you know, well, come some... in immediately. Yeah, and the doctor took his blood pressure and said you should be dead.
1: Well, listen, there's something called a mini stroke. Okay, so that's what he probably had, and you that know, was. Doctor,
0: the... doctor, giving any medical uh, that's analysis. what a mini stroke, stroke is the man had a stroke all right fine. okay
1: look he has a history of drug usage he's a hard liver he smoked cigarettes for years and years two it, packs a day right so it's not a shockeroo that uh he has serious medical problems so, so so anyway he's recovering so he
0: uh yeah he had, i think he had already done most of his work on this they were starting right previews or rehearsals or something yeah. and uh so, but he, you know, he he actually um, had a difficult time uh, writing. He yeah. stopped giving autographs for a while yeah. because it was, uh, you know, no, I'm too hard. I'm, I'm to sure do.
1: he is compromised.
0: So, that's by the way. There's some interesting advancements in treating strokes, mm-hmm. uh, where they can actually go in and remove a clot. Good. Some strokes um, are due to clots. Some mm. are due to bleeding. Right, mm. and they can. Um, if they find out soon enough and there's, uh, you know, uh, the ability in a nearby hospital, mm-hmm. they can go in there, get the clot, take mm-hmm. it out. I mean, okay. it's amazing. So anyway, uh, moving right along, he's made some changes. There's no magic. Yes,
1: yeah. Is that magic a big deal to you?
0: Merlin is like my favorite. Really? Yeah. There's
1: that song about come to me, you know. about oh, I hate yeah, no, no. It's the but worst but song. Wait, stop for a second. It's the worst song in the show. So, right? Be- wait, listen to me. The end of the first act, right? Yeah. The worst song in the show. Fine. Okay.
0: But still he took he, he's Take made it out. Morgan Morgana Le, Le, Fay Le Fay, yeah. Is now a scientist. Yeah, of course. A recovering opium addict. Yeah, okay, that's close enough. Okay. And Nimue, the nymph who lures yeah. Merlin away. Yeah. Is I forget what she is, but she's not a nymph. She's she's okay. like I don't know. But that's so, not, that was and never... Had, yeah,
1: um, not important. Lancelot. Yeah. What about him?
0: He's gone from being a um, Gaston-like buffoon. No, no, no. He was never to a To a three-dimensional person. Yeah, okay. well, Who a... wants Lancelot to be a three-dimensional well, first person? First of all... Even Guinevere yeah. doesn't want Lancelot to be three-dimensional. Time first of all... You don't, you're not looking for a ten, three-dimensional ten, ten, boy toy. Okay? Ten, ten, first of all... Hers was a marriage of convenience. He was
1: never a buffoon. For them to describe him as a buffoon.
0: No, no, no. The, the way uh, Sorkin was treating him, yeah. it he was it's kind of saying, you know, what is he going to be? Okay, you know right? the story
1: with Franco Nero and Vanessa Redgrave, do you not? No. Okay. Maybe I
0: know it, but. Uh, d- perhaps help you don't. Me out here.
1: Okay. In the movie, yeah. all right, Vanessa Redgrave, yeah. unaccountably, was yeah. cast as Guinevere. Yeah. All right. The uh, Lancelot, Franco Nero, yeah. okay, the love interest. They got along well together. She bore a baby with him. Yeah, notwithstanding they were married, so they became yeah. romantically involved in real life. Yeah, notwithstanding, so that was the spell of Lancelot. But Can and, they sing? Uh, she sang all right. No. I don't know what the you know the question is. Can Nero sing? I don't know. It, it was a very is successful more movie. The,
0: Is there more to the story? The
1: point is, they had sex together, and they were actors, and they were so carried away by this Lancelot Guinevere thing, it spilled it must have over been the music. It's <laughs> spilled over to real life. All right, so there's a. Sweeney Todd. The question is why Franco Nero didn't become a bigger star. We'll have speaking, to look into that.
0: Speaking of revivals, there's
1: revival of Sweeney Todd, Sweeney Todd, which is revived every few years, and every time it's revived. I know you just...
0: don't like Sweeney Todd. Sweeney yeah. Todd is a musical by Stephen Sondheim. Yeah,
1: and some yeah. people think it's the greatest Sweeney. Uh, and it's about musical by Sondheim the
0: Demon Barber of Fleet Street. Right. So it's about a a, a guy who. Kills his clients and then... Kills uh, certain
1: clients, yes. Kills
0: certain clients and they are then turned up right, in so the he, meat pies. Yeah, all right,
1: all right. You gave it all away. Of his landlady. Spoiler alert. But the point it's is... It's a revival, it's then. A re- <laughs> Every few years is a revival. Every time there's a revival, people say, this is the best Sweeney Todd ever. And uh, that's good. That's good for business.
0: So Josh Groban is in yeah,
1: it. Yeah. Who they praise as having a fantastic voice, uh, almost an operatic voice. And I think that's probably right. We okay. saw him in The Great Comet. Yes. But of course, he has a great pop career. Yes, And uh, the woman's very good. We've seen, Ad- we've seen Adeline Ashford on Broadway, too. Uh, and she was more recently in uh, Sunday in the Park with George, the latest revival of that, the latest Sondheim. And she also is, uh, she has a sitcom, name of which I don't recall and I never watched. Yeah, I'm sure it's good. I mean, uh, they go on and they say... Uh, basically, the review says... It's a very good production. I mean, uh, they don't say must be on that.
0: So why don't you like it?
1: I don't. Do I need a reason not to like it?
0: I'm just curious. Do you like it? Well, are you a Sweeney Todd fan? Certain songs I can't live without. Really? Um, what, Pretty women. Pretty Woman? And, um, Pretty women. No, the one. Uh, no one's going to harm you. Okay. Okay. Not while I'm around. Not while I'm around. I. That's so poignant. So you mean, that's who, not a song. So the
1: guy who sings that is a guy we saw in another production. Is Gaetan. What's his last name? Here he is. Here.
0: Matarazzo,
1: yeah, the guy from uh, Stranger Things, the kid from Stranger Things, he sings, sings that. Yes, he sings that uh, one. That is so. He sings very well. Dear, I, and we saw him in, in in a show. He sings very well.
0: I think of that. You know, you think of that in terms of your children, your grandchildren. You know, right, that's a very like, poignant song. going to care, right, for you, right. And uh, you know, no, so Sondheim's great I, enough. Some that, of it, I, some of it, I don't enjoy that much. But look, um, we're
1: talking Sondheim here. So if I say that it, I don't think it's great. That means compared to the other, that means there are six other Sondheim shows I think are better. That's all.
0: But in the pantheon
1: yeah.
0: of musicals, yeah. it ranks above most stuff.
1: Yeah, but it's not in the top ten.
0: Right. Okay. Right. So, anyway, so that's several... interesting. I don't know. You probably won't take me to
1: Okay, me. here's what I'm going to take you to there's a production of Guys and Dolls in London.
0: Ooh, and we have some tickets right. we need to use right. on British Airways. Okay, so here we go. It's listen, a
1: deal. Listen to this, okay? The production is at the Bridge Theater. It's done by Nicholas Heitner. It's Nicholas Heitner's first London musical in 30 years. The last one was, you guessed it, Carousel, which we saw at Lincoln Center. That was a Nicholas Heitner production. Oh, really? He has, and, you, and I will tell you this.
0: And you always say that's one of the best things you've ever seen.
1: Not only that, that I've ever seen. But I can this day remember your face at intermission. The lights went up at intermission. I looked at your face and you were carried away. Carried away. In a way I've never seen you. Affected by a musical.
0: Never? Oh, by a musical. By a musical, yes. Got it.
1: Right. This is the way they do this show. Listen to this, okay? At the bridge, there are 400 people in the theater, all right? 400 people in the theater. They have the opportunity to follow the characters' paths to the altar. The seats have been removed. From the orchestra level, and the action unfolds across hydraulic platforms that rise up from beneath the stage floor. Those who would prefer not to spend nearly three hours on their feet can sit on the sides. Okay, it's an immersive experience. They say that the performers are fantastic. They say the band is fantastic. They said in, in the in the production that this fellow uh, Matt Wolf uh, was at that there. <laughs> It ended with the audience joining a conga line with the cast at the end of the show, snaking through the space below. All right. Uh they go on about this song is great, that song is great. Uh they go on take back your mink, uh turns into a dizzying strip tease. I know you're looking forward to that. And uh and strangely, uh you know, sit down your rock in the boat, three encores. Uh
0: well, oh, that is a great song.
1: And they say the evening, this surprised me. The evening is nowhere more affecting than in, in the solo number, More I Cannot Wish You. Always I thought a questionable number.
0: Questionable, but but brings tears to your eyes.
1: Wishes, yes. The experience of love, it's, uh, you know, she has been denied. You know, that's what this fellow singing to his granddaughter about. Here's the, the last sentence of the show. There's nothing I could wish more for theatergoers than to experience this guys and dolls for themselves.
0: All right. Well, I wish I could stay longer, but I need to get on the computer right now. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to fire up Orbits.
1: Oh, I got to make sure. I got to see how long it's running. But yes. Yeah, I think we should go. I think we should go.
0: OMG. Guys and Dolls. Yeah. First musical on Broadway that Granger and Sadie saw when they were little peanuts. With Nathan Lane. Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right. So, again, it's uh, been a tumultuous week.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and we'll uh, see you next week.
0: This is Tamsin Granger.
1: And Dan Abuhoff.
0: With Tamsin and Dan.
1: Read the paper.